Hi there, if you're hearing this, you haven't yet upgraded to the Misfit feed and you're only hearing partial episodes of Founders. If you'd like to access every full episode, there's over 150 full-length episodes right now, you can unlock them immediately by tapping the link that's in the show notes on your podcast player or you can go to founderspodcast.com. Uh, there's a lot of value not only in the podcast that I'm creating every week based on the biographies of entrepreneurs that I'm reading, but also the back catalog. And to give you an example of that, I'm re-releasing founders the first half of Founders Number 10, which is based on one of my favorite books that I've ever read, which is the autobiography of the founder of Nike. And I think the opening of this episode is the best opening of any podcast I've made. You get to experience a 24-year-old Phil Knight. At this point in his life, he's lost, he's confused, he doesn't know what to do. But we get to experience his inner monologue as he tries to convince himself to go after his crazy idea. That crazy idea winds up being Nike. This is one of my favorite episodes. If you want to listen to the full episode, upgrade to the Mr. Feed. You can listen to this full episode and every single other full episode I do. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the preview. I was up before the others, before the birds, before the sun. I drank a cup of coffee, wolfed down a piece of toast, put on my shorts and sweatshirt, and laced up my green running shoes, then slipped quietly out the back door. I stretched my legs, my hamstrings, my lower back, and groaned as I took the first few balky steps into the cool road, into the fog. Why is it so always so hard to get started? There were no cars, no people, no signs of life. I was all alone, the world to myself. The best teacher I ever had, one of the finest men I ever knew, spoke of the Oregon Trail often. It's our birthright, he'd growl. Our character, our fate, our DNA. The cowards never started and the weak died along the way. That leaves us. Us. Some rare strain of pioneer spirit was discovered along that trail, my teacher believed. Some outside sense of possibility mixed with a diminished capacity for pessimism. That foggy morning, that momentous morning in 1962, I'd recently blazed my own trail, back home, after seven long years away. It was strange being home again, Strange being lashed again by the daily rains. Stranger still was living again with my parents and twin sisters, sleeping in my childhood bed. Late at night, I'd lie on my back, staring at my college textbooks and my high school trophies and blue ribbons, thinking, this is me? Still? On paper, I thought, I'm an adult. Graduated from a good college, University of Oregon earned a master's from a top business school, Stanford, survived a year-long hitch in the United States Army at Fort Lewis and Fort Eustis. My resume said I was a learned, accomplished soldier, a 24-year-old man in full. So why, I wondered, why do I still feel like a kid? I had found it difficult to say what or who exactly I was or might become. Like all my friends, I wanted to be successful, Unlike my friends, I didn't know what that meant. Money? Maybe. Wife? Kids? House? Sure, if I was lucky. These were the goals I was taught to aspire to, and part of me did aspire to them, instinctively. But deep down, I was searching for something else, something more. I had an aching sense that our time is short, shorter than we ever know, short as a morning run, and I wanted mine to be meaningful and purposeful, and creative, 
and important. Above all, different. And then it happened. As my young heart began to thump, as my pink lungs expanded like the wings of a bird, as the trees turned to greenish blurs, I saw it all before me, exactly what I wanted my life to be. Play. Yes, I thought, that's it. That's the word. The secret of happiness I'd always suspected, the essence of beauty or truth, or all we ever need to know of either, lay somewhere in that moment when the ball's in midair, when both boxers sense the approach of the bell, when the runner near the finish line and the crowd rises as one. There's a kind of exuberant clarity in that pulsing half second before winning and losing are decided. I wanted that, whatever that was, to be my life, my daily life. At different times, I'd fantasized about becoming a great novelist, a great journalist, a great statesman. But the ultimate dream was always to be a great athlete. Sadly, fate had made me good, not great. At 24, I was finally resigned to that fact. I'd run track at Oregon, and I'd distinguished myself lettering three or four years. But that was that. The end. Now as I began to clip off one brisk six-minute mile after another, as the rising sun set fire to the lowest needles of the pines, I asked myself, what if there were a way, without being an athlete, to feel what athletes feel, to play all the time instead of working? or else to enjoy work so much that it becomes essentially the same thing. The world was so overrun with war and pain and misery. The daily grind was so exhausting and often unjust. Maybe the only answer, I thought, was to find some prodigious, improbable dream that seemed worthy, that seemed fun, that seemed a good fit, and chase it with an athlete's single-minded dedication and purpose. Like it or not, life is a game. Whoever denies that truth, whoever simply refuses to play, gets left on the sidelines. I didn't want that. More than anything, that was the thing I did not want. Which led, as always, to my crazy idea. Maybe, I thought, just maybe, I need to take one more look at my crazy idea. Maybe my crazy idea might just work? Maybe. No, no, I thought, running faster, faster, running as if I were chasing someone and being chased all at the same time. It will work. By God, I'll make it work. No maybes about it. I was suddenly smiling, almost laughing, drenched in sweat, moving as gracefully and effortlessly as I ever had. I saw my crazy idea shining up ahead, and it didn't look all that crazy. It didn't even look like an idea. It looked like a place. It looked like a person. Or some life force that existed long before I did. Separate from me, but also part of me. Waiting for me, but also hiding from me. That might sound a little high-flown. A little crazy. But that's how I felt back then. Or maybe I didn't. Maybe my memories enlarging this eureka moment are condensing many eureka moments into one. Or maybe if there was such a moment... It was nothing more than runner's high. I don't know. I can't say. So much about those days and the months and years into which they slowly sorted themselves has vanished. Like those rounded, frosty puffs of breath. Faces. Numbers. 
decisions that once seemed pressing and irrevocable, they're all gone. What remains, however, is this one comforting certainty, this one anchoring truth that will never go away. At 24, I did have a crazy idea. And somehow, despite being dizzy with existential angst and fears about the future and doubts about myself, as all young and men and women are in their, in their mid-20s are, I did decide that the world is made up of crazy ideas. History is one long processional of crazy ideas. The, idea, the things I love most, books, sports, democracy, free enterprise, started as crazy ideas. So that morning in 1962, I told myself, let everyone else call your idea crazy. Just keep going. Don't stop. Don't even think about stopping until you get there. And don't give much thought to where there is. Whatever comes, just don't stop. That's the precious, prescient, urgent advice I managed to give myself out of the blue and somehow managed to take. Half a century later, I believe it's the best advice, maybe the only advice, any of us should ever give. This episode, uh, I want to talk to you about the New York Times bestseller, Shoe Dog, a memoir by the creator of Nike, Phil Knight. Um, so I want to jump right into the book, and I want to start with a description of his crazy idea. And this is from the chapter 1962. It was one of my final classes, a seminar on entrepreneurship. I'd written a research paper about shoes, and the paper had evolved from a run-of-the-mill assignment to an all-out obsession. Being a runner, I knew something about running shoes. Being a business buff, I knew that Japanese cameras had made deep cuts into the camera market, which had once been dominated by Germans. Thus, I argued in my paper that Japanese running shoes might do the same thing. The idea interested me, then inspired me, then captivated me. It seemed so obvious, so simple, so potentially huge. I spent weeks and weeks on that paper. I moved into the library, devoured everything I could, uh, I could find out about importing and exporting, about starting a company. Finally, as required, I'd given a formal presentation of the paper to my classmates, who reacted with formal boredom. Not one asked a single question. They greeted my passion and intensity with labored sighs and vacant stares. The professor thought my crazy idea had merit. He gave me an A. So all throughout that run and the introduction, when he's talking about his crazy idea, he's saying, hey, why don't we try, why don't I try to import inexpensive Japanese shoes and compete with the European brands that are currently dominating the market? As he was mentioning, he had this ex existential angst, like most of us do, about what's going to happen in my life, who am I, what am I going to become? And he decides that before he starts setting out to be an adult, he's going to travel the world. He wants to see the entire world, and he figures, hey, part of my world trip, I can stop in Japan, make some, um, some appointments with these factories, uh, shoe factories, and see if I can do a deal and start importing some of these Japanese shoes to sell. So he's putting this together. He's putting the idea, and he, before he pitches his dad, because he needs to borrow money from his dad to do this, he tells his friend, long before approaching my father, I decided it would be good to have a companion on my trip. And that companion should be my Stanford classmate, Carter. 
Though he'd been a hoop star at William Jewell College, Carter wasn't your typical jock. He wore thick glasses and read books. Good books. He was easy to talk to and easy not to talk to. Equally important qualities in a friend. Essential in a travel companion. But Carter laughed in my face. When I laid out the list of places I wanted to see, Hawaii, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Rangoon, Calcutta, Bombay, Saigon, Kathmandu, Cairo, Istanbul, Athens, Jordan, Jerusalem, Nairobi, Rome, Paris, Vienna, West Berlin, East Berlin, Munich, London. He rocked back on his heels and guffawed. Mortified, I looked down and began to make apologies. Then Carter, still laughing, said, What a swell idea, Buck. Uh, just let me interject right here. Buck, uh, his, Buck is his nickname, so his dad calls him that. All his friends call him Buck, even though he, uh, his Philip was his given name of birth. I looked up. He wasn't laughing at me. He was laughing with joy, with glee. He was impressed. It took balls to put together an itinerary like that, he said. Balls. He wanted in. Days later, he got the okay from his parents, plus a loan from his father. Carter never did mess around. See an open shot, take it. That was Carter. I told myself there was much I could learn from a guy like that as we circled the earth. I think wanting to travel the world, especially right after college or uh, even before, it might be pretty common now. But he makes the point that in 1962, 90% of Americans at the time had never even been on an airplane. What he was doing was looked upon by most of his family as uh, crazy and extremely dangerous. He winds up getting approval from his dad. They make the first stop. They fly to Hawaii. And they have an open-ended plane ticket. So it's not like um, they said, okay, we're going to stay in Hawaii for a few days. So they wind up landing in Hawaii and liking it so much that they rent an apartment and get jobs. So they're staying there for several months. They get jobs selling, uh, going door-to-door, selling encyclopedias, which Phil hates. He's not very good at then he gets a job selling securities um, and investments, mutual funds, and the like. And he's making enough money. And then, uh, he, well, let me just go to the book and you will see. A perfect Hawaiian autumn followed. Days of contentment and something close to bliss. Followed by a sharp restlessness. One night, I set my beer on the bar and turned to Carter. I think maybe the time has come to leave Shangri-La, I said. I didn't make a hard pitch. I didn't think I had to. It was clearly time to get back to the plan. But Carter frowned and stroked his chin. Gee, Buck, I don't know. He, he had met a girl, a beautiful Hawaiian teenager with long brown legs and jet black eyes, the kind of girl who greeted our airplane and the kind, of, the kind I dreamed of having and never would. He wanted to stick around, and how could I argue? I told him I understood, but I was cast low. I left the bar and went for a long walk on the beach. Game over, I told myself. The last thing I wanted was to pack up and return to Oregon. But I couldn't see traveling around the world alone either. Go home, a faint inner voice told me. Get a normal job. Be a normal person. Then I heard another faint voice, equally emphatic. No, don't go home. Keep going. Don't stop. So Phil leaves Carter in Hawaii on Thanksgiving Day. He flies to Tokyo. He gets to Tokyo, and he sets up uh, a bunch of appointments with different factories, uh, shoe factories, and he pitches them on his idea to import 
the shoes they're manufacturing and their brand and sell, being a distributor and selling them on the West Coast of the United States. He winds up doing a deal uh, for, for the shoe called the Tiger. And so then once he does that, um, they make an agreement. He takes another two months and he, he does this world trip. And there's a lot of interesting stories in there, but I wasn't sure how to share it without sharing the whole thing. And it's like 20 pages, so it, it'd be too long uh, to read on the podcast. So th- this I'm just telling you this so you can understand where we're at in the story. Now we're going to jump ahead because there's two people that I think are instrumental to the success of what becomes Nike outside of Phil Knight. And the first one is the co-founder of uh, Nike, where at this time it's called Blue Ribbon, and uh, it was Phil's track coach and one of the most famous track coaches, uh, even to this day. His name is Bill Bowerman. And Bill Bowerman is quite the character. So I want to talk about, I want to tell you about him for a little bit. So let's jump ahead. Then I sent two pairs to my old track coach at Oregon, Bill Bowerman. I did so without a second thought, since it, would, since it was Bowerman who first made me think, really think, about what people put on their feet. Bowerman was a genius coach, a master motivator a natural leader of young men. And there was one piece of gear he deemed crucial to their development, shoes. He was obsessed with how human beings are shod. In the four years I'd run for him at Oregon, Bowerman was constantly sneaking into our lockers and stealing our footwear. He'd spend days tearing them apart, stitching them back up, then hand them back with some minor modification, which made us either run like deer or bleed. Regardless of the results, he never stopped. He was determined to find new ways of bolstering the instep, cushioning the midsole, building out more room for the forefoot. He always had some new design, some new scheme to make our shoes sleeker, softer, lighter, especially lighter. One ounce sliced off a pair of shoes, he said, is the equivalent to 55 pounds over one mile. He wasn't kidding. His math was solid. You take the average man's stride of six feet, Spread it out over a mile, you get 880 steps. Remove one ounce from each step, that's 55 pounds on the button. Lightness, Bowerman believed, directly translated to less burden, which meant more energy, which meant more speed. And speed equaled winning. Bowerman didn't like to lose. I got it from him. Thus, lightness was his constant goal. And then skipping ahead a little bit, um, Bowerman obviously has a profound effect on Phil. Um, and their relationship lasts a lifetime. And so we're going to go into that a little bit uh, before jumping back into the personality of Bowerman, which I think you'll find interesting. It's possible that everything I did in those days was motivated by some deep yearning to impress, to please Bowerman. Besides my father, there was no man whose approval I craved more. And besides my father, there was no man who gave it less often. Frugality carried over to every part of the coach's makeup. He weighed and hoarded words of praise like uncut diamonds. I loved Bowerman and feared him, and neither of these initial impulses ever went away. Sometimes the fear was less, sometimes more. Sometimes it went right down to my shoes, which he had probably cobbled with his bare hands. Love and fear, the same binary emotions governed the dynamic between me and my father. I wondered sometimes if it was a mere coincidence that Bowerman and my father, both cryptic, both alpha, both inscrutable, were both named Bill. And yet the two men were driven by different demons. My father, the son of a butcher, was always chasing respectability, whereas Bowerman, 
whose father had been governor of Oregon, didn't give a damn for respectability. He was also the grandson of the legendary pioneers, men and women who walked the full length of the Oregon Trail. When they stopped walking, they founded a tiny town in eastern Oregon, which they called Fossil. Bowerman spent his early days there and compulsively returned. Part of his mind was always back in Fossil, which was funny because there was something distinctly fossilized about him. Hard, brown, ancient. He possessed a prehistoric strain of maleness, a blend of grit and integrity and calcified stubbornness that was rare in Lyndon Johnson's America. Today, it was all but extinct. He was a war hero, too. Of course he was. The most famous track coach in America, Bowerman never considered himself a track coach. He detested being called coach. Given his background, his makeup, he naturally thought of track as a means to an end. He called himself a professor of competitive responses. And his job, as he saw it and often described it, was to get you ready for the struggles and competitions that lay ahead, far beyond Oregon. So let me just interject uh, into this part here. I think this is this is an interesting uh, paragraph for me because throughout the entire book, um, Phil constantly compares uh, the art of business with running, with sport. Um, he also sometimes uh, uses the metaphor that uh, business is war without bullets. And he, um, he elaborates on this and says sometimes the metaphor is not perfect, but you kind of see this uh, throughout the entire book. And I couldn't help but thinking back to this paragraph where he's saying that Bowerman thought of his job not only to get uh, his runners as fast as possible, but to prepare them for struggles and competitions that lay ahead after they're done running. So let's go back to the book. Despite this lofty mission, or perhaps because of it, the facilities at Oregon were Spartan. Dank wooden walls, lockers that hadn't been painted in decades, In fact, the lockers had no doors, just slats to separate your stuff from the next guy. We hung our clothes on nails, rusty nails. We sometimes ran without socks. Complaining never crossed our minds. We saw our coach as a general, to be obeyed quickly and blindly. In my mind, he was patent with a stopwatch. That is, when he wasn't a god. Now, this is these two paragraphs I had to absolutely include. It gives you an idea of, uh, if you haven't gotten so already, exactly who this Bowerman fellow was. Like all ancient gods, Bowerman lived on a mountaintop. His majestic ranch sat on a peak high above the campus. And when, and when reposing on his private Olympus, he could be vengeful as the gods. One story told to me by a teammate brought this fact poignantly home. Apparently, there was a truck driver who often dared to disturb the peace on Bowerman Mountain. He took turns too fast and frequently knocked over Bowerman's mailbox. Bowerman scolded the trucker, threatened to punch him in the nose, and so forth, but the trucker paid no heed. He drove as he pleased day after day. So Bowerman rigged the mailbox with explosives. Next time the trucker knocked it over, boom! When the smoke cleared, the trucker found his truck in pieces, its tires reduced to ribbons. He never again touched Bowerman's mailbox. A man like that, you didn't want to get on his, on his wrong side, especially if you were a gangly, middle-distance runner from the Portland suburbs. I always tiptoed around Bowerman. Even so, he'd often lose patience with me, though I remember only one time where he got really sore. This is uh, another important part. I was a sophomore, being worn down by my schedule. 
class all morning, practice all afternoon, homework all night. One day, fearing that I was coming down with the flu, I stopped by Bowerman's office to say I wouldn't be able to practice that afternoon. Uh-huh, he said. Who's the coach of this team? You are? Well, as coach of this team, I'm telling you to get your ass out there. And by the way, we're going to have a time trial today. I was close to tears, but I held it together, channeled all my emotion into my run, and posted one of my best times of the year. As I walked up the track, I glowered at Bowerman. Happy now, you son of a bitch? He looked at me, checked his stopwatch, looked at me again, and nodded. He had tested me. He had broken me down and remade me, just like a pair of shoes. And I had held up. Thereafter, I was truly one of his men of Oregon. And just uh, two more paragraphs on Bowerman. I pulled up to Bowerman's stone fortress and marveled. Bowerman had built it with his bare hands. I wondered how on earth he'd managed all that back-breaking labor by himself. The man who moves a mountain begins by carrying away small stones. Amid the booming silence, I kept my eyes on the road and mulled over Bowerman's eccentric personality, which carried over to everything he did. He always went against the grain. Always. For example, he was the first college coach in America to emphasize rest, to place as much value on recovery as on work. But when he worked you, brother, he worked you. Bowerman's strategy for running the mile was simple. Set a fast pace for the first two laps, run the third as hard as you can, then triple your speed on the fourth. There was a zen-like quality to the strategy because it was impossible. And yet it worked. Bowerman coached more sub-four-minute milers than anybody. Ever. After Phil sends Bowerman the shoes, they have lunch. Bowerman says, hey, why don't you let me in on this deal? And they go in um, as partners with Phil owning 51% of the company and Bowerman is 49. So there's not, I'm not going to cover Bauer, uh, Bowerman's uh, innovations too much in this podcast. But throughout the book, he's kind of like a mad scientist. Um, one of the most famous uh, stories of Nike you'll hear is when they developed the, uh, the, the running shoe by using uh, a waffle iron. That was Bowerman. That wasn't Phil. And so throughout the entire time up until his death, I think in 1999... Um, he had made innovation after innovation, even after he stopped coaching. And he was an extremely successful uh, um, running coach. He coached the Olympics, uh, I think, two or three times. So um, I think Nike wouldn't be where it is without Bowerman and then without this guy, uh, Jeff Johnson, that we're going to talk about in a minute. But before I get there, I want to, um, as listeners of past podcasts will know, I have this section that um, usually occurs in almost every one of these biographies that I'm reading. And I affectionately call it Critics Don't Know Shit. And I'd like to, uh, to add an entry to our Critics Don't Know Shit section. When he's selling, he's, he's selling, Phil's selling shoes. He's, doing, he's selling them out of, his, out of his trunk at these track meets and uh, out of his parents' house. But his dad doesn't like this. Remember, he just talked about how his dad's always wanting uh, other people to like respect him and his family. So he said, he hadn't sent me to Oregon at Stanford to become a door-to-door shoe salesman, he said. Jackassing around. That's what he called it. Buck, he said, how long do you think you're going to keep jackassing around with these shoes? I shrugged. I don't know, dad. So his dad is accusing him of jackass. And then this is, uh, I, I wrote in the note, a mother's love. So I shouldn't have been too surprised by my mother's next move when my father accused me of jackassing around. 
Casually, she opened her purse and took out $7. I'd like to purchase one pair of limber-ups, please, she said, loud enough for him to hear. Limber-ups was one of the names of the shoes he was selling. Was it my mother's way of digging at my father? A show of loyalty to her only son? An affirmation of her love of track? I don't know. But no matter, it never failed to move me. The sight of her standing at the stove or the kitchen sink, cooking dinner or washing dishes in a pair of Japanese running shoes, size six. Uh, so here we have in the, in the early 1960s, his dad is telling him to stop jackassing around, go get a normal, you know, quote unquote, respectable job. And the company that he started winds up being like being Nike, where they're doing, I think, fast forward today, 30 billion in sales a year or something like that. Uh, Phil Knight is a multi-billionaire. Um, and so, again, this wasn't easy. there's no way anybody could predict this in the early 1960s. And in fact, part of the book talks about how running wasn't even really considered a sport. They talk about how, like, if you were running in Oregon just for fun, people would uh, drive by and uh, make fun of you, tell you to get a horse. Some people would throw drinks at runners. So it's not like how it is today where very much an accepted part of fitness and, and, a, and a global sport. Um, so I want to skip ahead. Um, I want to talk about Phil's sales strategy and the power of belief. And uh, let's go right into it. My sales strategy was simple and I thought rather brilliant. After being rejected by a couple of sporting goods stores, I drove all over the Pacific North- Northwest to various track meets. Between races, I'd chat up to coaches, the runners, the fans, and show them my wares. The response was always the same. I couldn't write orders fast enough. Driving back to Portland, I'd puzzle over my sudden success at selling. I'd been unable to sell encyclopedias, and I despised it to and I despised it to boot. I've been slightly better at selling mutual funds, but I felt dead inside. So why was selling shoes so different? Because I realized it wasn't selling. I believed in running. I believed that if people got out and ran a few miles every day, the world would be a better place. And I believed these shoes were better to run in. People sensing my belief wanted some of that belief for themselves. Belief, I decided... Belief is irresistible. Sometimes people wanted my shoes so badly that they'd write me or phone me saying they heard about the new Tigers and just had to have a pair. Could I please send them COD? Without even trying, my mail order business was born. Sometimes people would simply show up at my parents' house. Every few nights, the doorbell would ring and my father, grumbling, would get up from his vinyl recliner and turn down the TV and wonder who in the world... There on the porch would be some skinny kid with oddly muscular legs, shifty-eyed and twitchy, like a junkie looking to score. Uh, Buck here, the kid would say. My father would call through the kitchen to my room in the servant's quarter. I'd come out, invite the kid in, show him over to the sofa, then kneel before him and measure his foot. My father, hands jammed into his pockets, would watch the whole transaction incredulous. On July 4th, 1964, I sold out my first shipment. I wrote to Tiger and ordered 900 more. I had a venerable partner, a legitimate bank, and a product that was selling itself. I was on a roll. Thanks for making it to the end of this preview. If you want to continue listening to the full episode, you'll need to upgrade to the Misfit feed. By upgrading, you'll get access to every full episode that I've ever done. These episodes are available nowhere else. 
And as a bonus, you also get lifetime access to my notebook that contains key insights from over 285 podcasts and lectures on entrepreneurship. As a way to illustrate why it is so important for you to learn the lessons from all the biographies that I analyze on the Misfit feed, I have some quotes that I've collected from other people who have discovered the value in reading biographies, and they explain to you and I why this activity is so valuable. So the first quote comes from the founder of Shopify, Toby Luke, and he says, books are the closest you will ever come to finding cheat codes for real life. You can access the entire learnings of someone else's career in a few hours. This quote from Mark Andreessen on why he reads biographies. There are thousands of years in history in which lots and lots of very smart people worked very hard and ran all types of experiments on how to create new businesses and invent new technology. They ran these experiments throughout their entire lives. At some point, somebody put these ideas down in a book. For very little money and a few hours of time, you can learn from someone's accumulated experience. There is so much more to learn from the past than we often realize. You could productively spend your time reading experiences of great people who have come before you and learn every time. And finally, this quote from the book, The Tao of Charlie Munger, on why Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett have both read hundreds of biographies in their lifetime. Reading personal biographies allows ones to experience multiple lives and successes and failures. Reading business biographies allows one to experience the vicissitudes of a business and learn how problems were solved. Both Charlie and Warren are copious readers of personal and business biographies. So upgrade now by tapping the link that's in your show notes on your podcast player or going to founderspodcast.com.